Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, uh, my name is Sarah Healy. I'm one of the neurology registrars working on NeuroPodCases. And for today's episode, we've got consultant neurologist and clinical neurophysiologist Ed Rodriguez, who works in the Royal Melbourne Hospital and Alfred Hospital in Melbourne. Uh, thanks very much for joining us today, Ed. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to talk about nerve conduction studies, Ed. And mm-hmm. kind of as an introduction, what, what are your thoughts on nerve conduction studies? Yeah, so um, as we've talked about on many occasions, um, you know, nerve conduction studies are uh, a test like anything else in neurology and like anything else in general medicine. I think if we take a step backwards and kind of um, look at, uh, well, neuropathies in general, but also... Um, what the clinical phenotype is, because um, at the end of the day, um, nerve conduction studies are an extension of the clinical examination. Um, so it, it does, um, the clinical examination does matter. Um, and um, I guess if you take away one message from today is that uh, nerve conduction studies or EMG, for that matter, are not necessarily a black box. Um, you don't sort of have a question and then spits out an answer. Um, you you tailor your nerve conduction study to the question being asked, um, and it's um, the examination uh, whether the patient is reflexic, which muscles are weak, are also very important um, before we actually venture out to do a nerve conduction study. Um, so yes, nerve conduction studies are extension of the examination. Um, they add to the clinical phenotype um, and help confirm your diagnosis rather than um, make a diagnosis. Um, um, so it's always good to know what question you're asking, uh, especially when you're requesting these or doing them. Um, so, yeah, but uh, when we do nerve conduction studies, we are testing um, mostly myelinated fibers. Um, we do sensory studies and motor studies, um, but the sensory nerves that we are testing are the um, myelinated sensory fibers rather than the small fibers. Um, we... Uh, uh, predominantly look at large fiber function, like we said, um, and again we are looking at the neuroaxis, um, sort of beyond the dorsal ganglion. Um, but we can infer some things about the anterior horn cell. Uh, we can infer some things about the motor axon or the motor nerve root, um, and we can infer things about the dorsal ganglion. Um, but we are mostly testing mixed sensory and motor nerves. Um, we. Uh, on routine nerve conduction studies, uh, we can't test small fibers, res- fibers responsible for sweating, fibers responsible for, um, um, I guess, um, um, pressure sensitivity, um, and um, those require more specialized testing. Um, and again, at the end, um, with nerve conduction studies, we are, we are um, recording and simulating from extremities, um, so um, proximal assessment, uh, proximal segments of nerves. Um, uh, is limited, uh, assessment of proximal segments of nerves is limited uh, with standard nerve conduction studies. Okay, so so when when we're doing the, when we're looking at the peripheral nerves and we're looking at these myelinated fibres, um, is there a system that you kind of use when, you, when you're doing the studies to, to help work out what, what's going on or what, or help work out, help add to that clinical assessment, like you said, in terms of what we're seeing on the test? Mm. So, yeah, I think, um, you know, just like when you're examining somebody, um, we start with, um, when we're doing the production studies, we start with asking kind of, you know, um, four cardinal questions. Is this, um, is this uh, pre-ganglionic or post-ganglionic? 
um, is this sensory um, or motor or both? Um, is this axonal or demyelinating? And what the level of the lesion is? Is this at the peripheral nerve? Is this at the nerve root? Is it at the plexus? Or is it at the anterior horn cells? Um, and generally, when we talk about, um, well, we'll talk about sensory nerves, uh, sensory nerve conduction studies, for instance. Um, so any pathology that is um, beyond the dorsal ganglion um, will affect the sensory nerve action potentials. Um, the thing that uh, everybody needs to understand with sensory nerve conduction studies, it's um, uh, although the waveforms might look similar, um, then like compared to modern nerve conduction studies. Um, it's we're only actually recording a traveling waveform. Um, there is no neuromuscular junction between the sensory nerve and the skin, for instance. Um, so when you're doing sensory nerve studies um, on your on your digits, um, you're stimulating at a proximal site, say at the wrist, and you're essentially recording a traveling waveform. Um, uh, as opposed to modern nerve conduction studies, where you're actually stimulating the nerve um, and you're sending impulse down the neuromuscular junction, um, that activates um, muscle fibers, and um, which gives you a summation, um, and the electrode on top of the muscle fibers um, or, or the muscle gives you gives you a summation or a, a compound motor action potential um, of the response um, from the generating the motor nerve. Um, so sensory and motor nerve conduction studies, although they might look similar. Uh, are quite different. Um, and I think the other thing to do with that is um, sensory um, nerve conduction studies um, or, or waveforms generally have a triphasic potential and there are um, electrophysiological reasons for this <laughs> which might be hard to do on a podcast uh, as opposed to um, um, modern nerve conduction studies which are more biphasic where you have an initial negative deflection and then a, a positive deflection. Uh, but with sensory nerve studies you will have a initial positive then a negative and then another positive reflection. Um, that's to do with the, uh, the wave as it transmits beneath the recording electrodes from a negative to a positive. Um, um, and and uh, sensory nerve conduction studies um, give you limited information, but sometimes, uh, for instance, in the brachial plexopathy, um, they have um, they have quite a lot of added value in localizing uh, whether the uh, whether the process is upper trunk versus lower trunk uh, or medial cord versus lower cord. You get more uh, pathological information, I guess. Um, and I think uh, the best way to visualize this is we visualize or we uh, look at nerves in segments. So we look at um, proximal segments of nerves and we look at intermediate segments of nerves and we look at distal segments of nerves. And when we look at nerve conduction studies, um, we obviously have different parameters that we look at. Um, one of the first parameters that I normally look at when you're looking at modern nerve conduction studies is looking at the amplitude. Because if the amplitude is lower due to axonal damage, then it changes all the other parameters as well. Um, but if the amplitude is normal, then you look at the distal latency for a second. And the distal latency is a measure of the, uh, or is a, is a marker of the, um, kind of distal segments of the nerves. If the distal latency is okay, then you look at the conduction velocity, and that's more the measure of um, more a measure of the intermediate um, segments of nerves and function of intermediate segments of nerves. Uh, while F waves are more kind of representative of the proximal segments of nerves. And say, for instance, in somebody with the genetic or hereditary neuropathy, you would expect slowing in the proximal segments. You would expect slowing in the um, intermediate segments. And you expect slowing the distal segments. So you might see prolonged distal latencies. You might see prolonged F-wave latencies. 
and you might see reduced conduction velocity. But in somebody like an inflammatory neuropathy or CITP, <clears throat> um, because the process is inflammatory and because the process is patchy, um, you might see um, changes more proximally. So the F phase might be prolonged, but the conduction velocity might be okay. Um, the dislatency sometimes may be prolonged more than the F wave, um, but the intermediate segments might be okay. Um, so it again helps build on the clinical phenotype, and um, there is a um, obviously a clinical phenotype for some neuropathies, um, but there's also an electrodiagnostic phenotype uh, that helps to differentiate um, um, CITP from, or typical CID from atypical CITP, or uh, poems from CITP, um, uh, or you know, for instance, an anti-mag neuropathy related to paraproteinemia uh, compared to CITP. So. Um, there are, you know, definite um, patterns um, that we look for on no conduction studies that will help us in a diagnostic process and help kind of localize uh, the problem. Um, yeah. You mentioned axonal or demyelinating. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do those patterns tend to look like? Yeah, so um, I guess uh, no conduction studies are a surrogate of what's happening at the microscopic level or at the axonal level and the myelin level. Um, so with an external pathology, you would expect um, the sensory nerve action potentials or the SNAPs and the CMAPs or the compound motor action potentials to have a reduced amplitude or uh, you may lose them if the process is um, long-standing enough. Um, and if the amplitude is redu reduced, uh, for instance, for the, of the CMAP, um, then your velocity should be relatively preserved. Um, as opposed to a demyelinating neuropathy, because um, of demyelination, you might you might actually get reduction um, in the conduction velocity um, first before the amplitude drops off. Um, so, most uh, well, um, generally um, you can get primary axonal neuropathies. Um, you may have primary demyelinating neuropathies. Um, if a demyelinating neuropathy goes on for long enough, you will have secondary axonal damage. Um, and so in reality, we actually, when we do nerve conduction studies, uh, we very rarely see a purely axonal neuropathy or purely demyelinating neuropathy. Uh, most of the time, it's mixed pathology. Mm. Um, certainly, um, if you have focal demyelination, uh, even from um, something like carpal tunnel syndrome, um, or an allo neuropathy at the elbow, you might see a focal conduction block, um, which is essentially a drop in this um, in the amplitude of the CMAP uh, of more than 50% um, or more than 30% if the distance between the two uh, between the two stimulating points um, is is reduced. Um, you might see temporal dispersion if um, the if the demyelination is kind of more widespread across um, the length of the nerve rather than a focal uh, part of the nerve being demyelinated. And again, those are more um, signs of demyelinating neuropathy, and you shouldn't see them on axonal neuropathies. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, there are different patterns for axonal neuropathy, different patterns for demyelinating neuropathies. Um, and again, um, with nerve conduction studies, you know you can look at proximal segments, you can um, you can look at distal segments, um, you can look at the intermediate segments, and um, sort of try and guess at what the underlying pathology might be. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, a, a, for instance, a nerve biopsy, which is the only other way of looking at the nerve um, and looking at axonal um, demyelin and demyelination. Uh, and most of the time, if you were, for instance, if you're doing nerve biopsies, you're probably just sampling distal nerves or sural nerves 
um, and you can't get access to more proximal nerves or even motor nerves, but nerve conduction studies can go where your biopsy needle can't. Mm. Um, so it does help um, in the right clinical situation, obviously. <laughs> uh, it does help to um, localize the problem and try and estimate what the underlying pathology is. Um, and uh, depending um, on criteria, um, I'll give you a diagnosis. Um, yep. So are there any common difficulties or caveats to neuroconduction studies that, that we should all be aware of? Yeah, so uh, technique, technique, technique. Um, I mean, um, um, generally, uh, most um, neurophysiology programs uh, will be uh, a year full-time of, um, you know, uh, neurophysiology, which includes neuroconduction studies and EMG only. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, you can, you can, uh, if uh, if you if you don't stick to the right technique, you can look uh, you can make anything look like demyelinating. You can look and you can make anything look like axonal. Um, so I think um, uh, reproducibility is the key. If something's not reproducible, it's not there. Um, is what my mentor used to tell me. Um, and I think um, yeah, I think once your technique is down, um, um, and again this comes with practice. Um, looking at the patient, um, and I always do this uh, when I, before I do my nephrodaction studies, um, I try and examine the patient first before I start the study, um, because at the end of the day, it, does, it is an extension of the clinical uh, examination. And, you know, you may have, uh, for instance, um, uh, if somebody's got low amplitudes, um, you may have slowing in the conduction velocities because if, if it's an axonal pathology and you lose your fastest conducting fibers, that can cause secondary slowing of the conduction velocity, um, but that doesn't necessarily make it um, demyelinating. And that's one of the main sources of error where uh, um, neuropathies that are predominantly axonal are called demyelinating and end up uh, having a diagnosis of CIDP and then end up on IVIG and other, mm. other immunosuppressive therapies. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, practice doing this for a long time um, um, is, is the key. Um, and taking everything into account, not, um, like I said, not, uh, like I've said many times before to you, Sarah, uh, not uh, applying the nephrodaction studies to the patient, but more, um, you know, seeing what the patient has and then using the nephrodaction studies to confirm your diagnosis or refute your diagnosis, um, not in isolation. Great. Um so I thought we could go through a few kind of cases mm. at this point just to mm. try and mm. apply those principles that we've just talked through. Um, and I guess one of the most common things you probably get referred for neuroconduction studies is um, tingling hands and query carpal tunnel. Um, so what, how would you kind of approach a, a patient, say a 30-year-old patient complain, uh, complaining of tingling and dropping things and the referrals come through for studies to look at carpal tunnel? How would you approach that? Sure. Um, so certainly the first thing would be to um, examine the patient when they first come in and then warm their hands up to the right temperature. So you would aim for a, a temperature of greater than 33 degrees in the upper extremities if you were doing carpal tunnel studies. Um, so we would normally use, uh, depending on how cold the patient is, you might use a um, hot water bath. Uh, we might use warming lamps. Uh, we use we have both of that in a lab. And then once the patient is at appropriate temperature, um, you make sure that their hands are clean, there's not grime, there's no lotions on their hands, uh, which might interfere with uh, where your electrodes might stick or not stick. 
um, and uh, always measure. Uh, we always want to know what the height of the patient is because the nephronectin studies change with temperature, change with height. Uh, so, you, for instance, your sensory nephronectin studies, the altitudes might um, go high, the connection velocities might become slow if your temperature um, is, um, is cold. Um, similarly with motor nerve conduction studies, um, sometimes conduction blocks um, may become less apparent if the temperature is too low as well. And there, there are uh, um, electrophysiological reasons for this, which we won't go into today. Uh, but here, yeah, maintaining the temperature um, above 33 degrees in the upper extremities uh, while doing the study. Um, so you would generally start um, with um, doing a Palmer study. So this is essentially... Um, um, placing electrodes in the wrist and then simulating the median palm and nerve in the in the in, um, in the palm, and then recording across the wrist. Um, so you're again recording a traveling wave. So you're looking at things like uh, peak latency um, and the altitudes, um, and then you compare the same with the ulnar latency. So uh, assuming uh, the ulnar nerve doesn't go through the carpal tunnel. Um, so if you've got a increase in the um, peak latency of the median nerve compared to the ulnar nerve um, that would be consistent with slowing across the carpal tunnel uh, which would be consistent with carpal tunnel syndrome. Um, certainly the uh, median and ulnar palmar studies are the most sensitive for diagnosing carpal tunnel um, syndrome in, in normal patients. Uh, when I say normal patients, in patients without a pre-existing superimposed neuropathy. Um, so you could also do comparative studies looking at digit 4 because it has um, innovation from both median and um, median and um, um, ulnar nerves. So this would in, uh, sort of usually involve placing electrodes on the um, on the fourth digit and then stimulating at the median at the at the wrist and stimulating the ulnar of the wrist and recording um, latencies um, the difference in latencies between the two. Um, similarly, uh, we could compare the radial and the median nerve and um, same thing. You would put electrodes on the on the thumb and then stimulate the median of the wrist and stimulate the radial of the wrist and look for a increase in latency or difference in latency between the two. Um, and then you would look at motor studies. Um, so again, uh, with motor studies, you're stimulating the nerve and you're recording a, a motor action potential, uh, which is a summation of all the muscle fibers contracting. Um, so for instance, with a carpal tunnel study, you would place electrodes on the um, abductor pollicis brevis and you would place your reference electrode on the um, nearest bony prominence and then stimulate I take seven centimeters because um, that's what our lab um, says here um, and then stimulate at the wrist um, and then stimulate at the proximal um, elbow and then work out what the distal latency is so somebody with carpal tunnel if the motor fibers are affected you would expect an increase in distal latency um, and to look at the segment of the nerve between the wrist and the um, elbow, you would stimulate at the proximal elbow site and then work out what the latency is and then work out the distance between the wrist and the proximal elbow and then work out the difference between latencies within the two points to your response and that gives you a conduction velocity across that segment. Um, similarly, you would want to do F-waves as well, so you would um, stimulate the wrist and um, um, change the program to record F-waves and then you will look at the volleys that go um, go autodromically to the anterior horn cells and then antidromically um, all the way down to the APB which we can record. Um, so it looks at the entire segment of the nerve uh, while stimulating it, still recording from a distal, um, distal point. Um, 
and you would do the same for all nerves as well because um, again if you have a couple sound studies not only a couple sound study um, um, if they may have if the patient has FDI wasting or ADM wasting or weakness in the uh, fifth digit then you might want to look at the ulnar nerve and same scenario you would um, you know stimulate the um, ulnar nerve with the wrist motor and sensory fibers and look for prolonged latency across the wrist uh, which is less common um, with ulnar neuropathies across the elbow um, you would stimulate at the below elbow side and above elbow side and look for swelling across that segment and if you find a difference then you might want to um, stimulate at um, two centimeter increments to see if there's a sudden drop off in the in the amplitude of the c-map uh, or a conduction block which might give you if the um, slowing is distal to the medial epicondyle or proximal to the medial epicondyle and uh, accordingly it helps the surgeon um, sort of um, target and plan their surgery um, as to whether it could be a, just a release of the ulnar nerve or uh, um, um, release the fascia or is it more kind of a relocation of the ulnar nerve from beneath the epicondyle underneath the muscles um, so yeah that that would um, generally be what we would do for carpal studies mm. um, and again if if um, you have um, muscle wasting in the APB and say you've lost all your all your responses and you mm. can't record anything and then it becomes a bit tricky uh, you might want to do a motor comparative study where you compare between the median and the ulnar nerve um, and look at the FDI in the first lumbrical um, and again um, um, assuming uh, same distance from the recording sites, so you're looking for any difference, any decrease in the latency, and that tends to be more sensitive in patients with uh, neuropathies or diabetic neuropathies. Um, again, never forget, don't forget about the contribution of your proximal nerve segments. So somebody with a, um, for instance, a C8 radiculopathy um, may have um, um, reduced, um, may have lost their APB muscle bulk. Um, sorry, T1 radiculopathy may have lost their muscle bulk so you might not actually get any responses so you might want to rely you may have to rely on uh, nearly EMG studies for those to prove innovation in um, being invaded muscles but also look at other um, muscles that are invaded by C8 or T1 nerve roots to work out if this is a radiculopathy um, or a plexopathy um, and again sensories um, help you with that too as we talked about before um, so yeah so, and so when thinking about a carpal tunnel, is mm -hmm. there, um, I think one thing that the referrals probably come in asking about is kind of grading its severity and mm -hmm. uh, what, what, how would you kind of go about that process? Yeah, so I guess uh, first thing, I mean, there's no one grading of severity, but um, generally, um, electrophysiologically, what we would use if, if you lose any any responses, um, even sensories, uh, or if you, if you lost your um, sensory interaction potentials, and that would imply axonal damage, um, so that would be severe. Um, but if you just had a prolongation of this latency, but your um, sensory nerve action potential was still preserved, um, then that would imply demyelination due to due to um, compression, uh, which has a better prognosis. So that would be a mild carpal mm -hmm. tunnel. And I guess if you look at moderate severity, if you've got a prolongation of the um, um, median uh, sensory dyslatency and prolongation of the median motor dyslatency but both the responses are still preserved then you would sort of um, call it moderate severity but again mild moderate and severe um, don't really mean much for patient symptoms um, patients with mild carpal tunnel can have severe symptoms people with uh, severe carpal tunnel can have you know may have no symptoms mm -hmm. um, so but it does help 
sort of, um, I guess, um, electrophysiologically defining these um, based on based on axonal um, damage can give you can give that surgeon some idea of severity, mm-hmm. um, uh, if it's not already apparent um, clinically. Because, <laughs> like you mentioned, if you've got axonal loss on yeah. a carpal tunnel study, the the benefit from a compression from a decompression is probably a bit less. Would you say? Yeah, I guess it depends. Um, um, and I guess, you know, if you've lost um, all your motor fibers and you've lost all your sensory fibers and you've got a denovated hand and uh, we think the pathology is still carpal tunnel, then uh, perhaps, you know, decompression may not help. Um, mm-hmm. um, but again, those are um, um, thankfully uh, the very severe ones where you've lost your motor CMAPs and motor responses are, are um, kind of not as frequent. Um, so. Most people, most um, general practitioners know how to recognize um, carpal tunnel syndrome. And um, most of the time we get a lot of um, studies, uh, study requests for carpal tunnel syndrome, which end up being normal. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, we will occasionally see the very severe carpal tunnel. And in those situations, it's a bit tricky uh, whether to... um, you know, to make a decision whether to offer surgery or not. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's uh, pretty... Um, sort of low-risk surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, so sometimes people are on the side of, um, you know, um, trying to give the patient some benefit. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Right. Okay, I thought um, another case, or likely case you'd come across in a mm-hmm. typical nerve con- uh, conduction study clinic is one of um, some a query of a length-dependent peripheral polyneuropathy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, just thinking up a case, a 60-year-old gentleman with known... Uh, diabetes come in um, and feeling a bit weak in his in his feet and mm. on examination that's confirmed and what what kind of what would your how would your approach to doing his studies be yeah so um, again I would examine the patient first I think um, you know checking if they were flexic um, checking if they've got any um, any high arches hematose have they got any um, distal muscle atrophy um, can they go up on their toes? Can they go up on their heels? Can they walk in tandem gait? Um, you know, um, are they more a sensory ataxic component to their gait rather than a true motor weakness? And doing a brief sensory examination also helps. Um, but I think if you're looking at the lendependent process, I would, in a, in a, in that scenario, I would start off with the lower extremities, um, assuming my clinical examination also shows signs in the lower extremities. Um, and you know you would start with uh, I generally start with um, doing the perineal EDV response, um, which um, in a lot of older um, male people may be absent just because of um, atrophy, um, disuse atrophy or um, age-related atrophy. Um, in those situations, um, you know um, if we don't record a response from the EDP, uh, that's not necessarily abnormal. Um, so we could check the tibialis anterior, for instance and stimulate the perineal nerve with the fibular head and, and the popliteal fossa. Uh, we would do a tibial motor nerve study, um, and again, um, stimulate behind the medial malleolus recording the abductor holosis, and do that in the popliteal fossa as well. And same like we did for the carpal tunnel, look at the um, uh, latency difference between the two points and calculate the distance and then work out conduction velocity, and we can do F-waves as well. And uh, perineal F-waves are less reliable, tibial F-waves are more reliable. Um, and we would do it on both sides, um, even uh, comparing, because there are normal values for all of these, but um, and um, especially if you've got a young patient, you want to compare side to side, um, because normal for one person may not be normal for somebody else. Um, so asymmetry is um, 
is always um, needs to be looked at um, if you know if the asymmetry is due to if it's a symmetrical endocrine process as diabetes generally diabetes is um, you shouldn't expect any asymmetries in sensory motor responses um, but if you see a very patchy sensory um, so if you see a patchy um, sensory motor neuropathy that's asymmetric you might want to think about things like neuritis multiplex um, or multifocal motor neuropathy um, or other differentials um, and I guess that sort of uh, again brings it back to you know um, what's the cause of a neuropathy is the cause that we find elevated blood sugar level in somebody with a neuropathy um, diabetes is pretty common neuropathies are pretty common um, so I think the clinical phenotype I think what we need to ask ourselves is um, what do patients with um, diabetic neuropathy typically present with are they large mm -hmm. fiber are they small fiber um, and generally diabetes has both um, generally painful small fiber um, generally people with diabetes will also have some degree of autonomic dysfunction um, they may have um, a, a, a radicular neuropathy presentation more like a diabetic amyotrophy presentation sometimes which is painful um, so the clinical phenotype matters so um, I think if you're for instance if you're seeing a picture that is on nephrological studies that is um, very patchy and very um, kind of asymmetrical um, that doesn't necessarily make it related to diabetes just because you've proven diabetes um, and you want to sort of look at other differentials um, uh, masculitis or um, you know um, a multifocal CIDP um, so it's always good to think about uh, what the clinical phenotype is and then marry that to the electrodiagnostic phenotype and um, then use laboratory markers as a kind of supportive criteria I guess um, to come to come to um, as to what's causing this neuropathy um, so yeah so like you said kind of so the idle length so working out the patterns length dependent multifocal generalized kind of just working it out from there yeah and I think you know sometimes um, you know uh, you may end up um, you know studying two limbs you might sometimes end up studying four limbs if you get a lot of asymmetry and stuff mm. um, so I think um, again tailoring the um, nerve study to what your examination shows you because mm -hmm. um, 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 sometimes doing one limb um, sometimes doing one hand and one leg might be enough if the examination is all symmetrical and you're happy there's no asymmetries clinically uh, but generally you would eat at least for a perfect neuropathy you want to do both the lower extremities and one upper limb mm -hmm. but in the rational context maybe doing all four limbs might be it might be useful mm -hmm. especially if they if um, things like vasculitis are on the cards because that can be quite patchy mm -hmm. um, so yes um, uh, obviously the, the more them study the better um, obviously in day-to-day -day life um, you know, time is an issue um, getting patients um, in and out through the door is an issue but um, yeah I think it's good to have one thorough study <laughs> than 10 non-thorough studies um, so yes um, just one more thought. Um, just thinking again about maybe a sensory neuropathy. What what the kind of nerve conduction studies could look at like for that? Because that could be uh, a bit different compared to the other things we've talked about there, the compression ones or length dependent or, or multifocal. If someone has a pure sensory um, deficit, uh, so again, just thinking of, of a case of fifty year, fifty year old smoker presented with um, severe sensory ataxia coming on over over days and weeks. What would their nerve connection studies look like? Yeah, so so generally, I guess um, you know, if somebody's got a sensory neuropathy, you should be evident clinically, as in um, they would have a you know profound sensory ataxia. They might be reflexic. Um, 
generalized hyperreflexia. Um, they may have other autonomic stuff, uh, autonomic symptoms, sorry, um, as well. Um, but um, there are, I guess, criteria for um, what an international study should look like in somebody with a sensory neuropathy or gangrenopathy. But it'd be very hard to differentiate, some, say, somebody with a severe um, lend-dependent sensory neuropathy versus somebody who's got a sensory neuropathy. Um, because if you lose all your sensory responses, um, then it becomes a bit tricky to d <laughs> um, diagnose um, those based purely on the um, nerve function study. So for, 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 for certainly, you know, somebody's got a len severe lend-dependent sensory neuropathy where they've lost um, most of the sensory responses, but their motor responses are preserved. Um, you would think um, you, you wouldn't be able to exclude a sensory neuropathy, but it does. Again, comes on the thing called picture. Mm -hmm. um, is this somebody with a Lenderman process or is this somebody with a generalized process? Mm -hmm. Yes, um, but um, in, a, in a typical sensory neuropathy, it, it um, may not be lend dependent, so you might um, you know, lose your upper extremity responses, but may still have some um, lower extremity responses that are still preserved. Um, uh, again, you may have asymmetry. Um, you may have one um, nerve on one side that is low amplitude sensory responses, but absent on the other side. Um, and again, in the same in the same instance, if somebody's got a vasculitic neuropathy that's quite patchy and uh, is affecting sensory nerves, that might be hard to differentiate from a sensory neuropathy just based on electrodiagnostic studies. Um, so again, the clinical context is important. Um, and so yeah, you would expect normal motor studies if the sensory is um, um, uh, and the sensory is being more affected. Um, the rest particular patterns um, we have all. Oh, I hope most of you have heard about the cerebral um, sparing pattern in patients with the Guillain-Barré syndrome or AIDP. Uh, we see a cerebral sparing pattern sometimes in CIDP. In fact, it's one of the um, sort of minor criteria to diagnose CIDP. Um, but again, it, the clinical context matters. So if somebody is not, um, if somebody doesn't have the clinical features of CIDP or doesn't have the clinical history of CIDP, um, then the uh, whatever the nerve conduction studies show you doesn't really matter because <laughs> uh, you still want to, you're doing the nerve conduction studies secondary to confirm your diagnosis. Um, sorry, I keep harping on about this, but it's important. <laughs> Um, so sorry, just one more. I know I said one more before. What? How? Is there anything interesting with nerve conduction studies when we're looking at radiculopathies with sensory and motor responses? So I guess um, you can only diagnose radiculopathies um, um, with an EMG, um, or at least confirm radiculopathies with an EMG. Um, generally, radiculopathies um, are free ganglionic processes. Um, so. Say, for instance, if you've got somebody um, with leg numbness, um, not necessarily pain, um, maybe pain and a bit of numbness, and um, you um, you start off your nerve studies with sensory responses, and you've got um, absent sensory responses on the side that is symptomatic. So that, by definition, cannot um, be a radiculopathy because it does mean that there is post-ganglionic involvement, there's pathology beyond the dosoral ganglion. Um, now the important caveats to this, um, so um, in patients um, with say for instance an L5 radiculopathy, um, just because the L5 dosoral ganglion is uh, placed um, um, sort of more laterally in the spinal canal 
you can have um, um, a disk protrusion that compresses the uh, or compresses the L5 dorsoterotic ganglion. Um, so in somebody with an L5 radiculopathy, you may lose the sensory response, um, so the superficial perineal response. Um, so that's fairly common. Um, and in that scenario, um, again, you might see a low amplitude ADB response um, or low amplitude perineal response, um, but you might see a preserved tibial response. Um, but um, the absence of a superficial perineal sensory response um, in the context of an L5 radiculopathy um, you know, doesn't necessarily exclude an L5 radiculopathy. At the same time, it doesn't exclude an L5 uh, plexopathy, or doesn't exclude a lumbar sacral plexopathy, uh, which is affecting the perineal, mm. perineal nerve more than the uh, tibial nerve. Um, doesn't exclude, it doesn't exclude a sciatic neuropathy, which is affecting you know, the perineal fibers more than the uh, tibial fibers. Uh, so the clinical context matters. <laughs> um, and EMG can help you separate that. So you know, with the EMG, we haven't spoken about um, um, the um, um, electrophysiology of EMG, but if you proved innovation, in, for instance, radiculopathy, um, you would expect the same degree of innovation on EMG um, in a distal muscle, uh, astroproximal muscle. So for instance, in L5 radiculopathy, um, you might see denervation in the tibialis anterior. Um, you will see the same same degree of denervation in, say, the tensor fascia lata, uh, which is an L5 innervated muscle, um, which is proximal. You might see the same degree of denervation in the um, shorter of the biceps femoris, um, and you will see the same denervation in the lumbar paraspinals. Um, so that sort of tells you that all fiber diclopathy, so it's not a land-dependent process. Um, it is affecting all the muscles supplied by the um, same nerve root to the same extent. Um, and similarly, with sciatic neuropathy, um, you know, for instance, if you prove um, denervation in the tibialis anterior, but also denervation in the middle gastroc, which is more S1 uh, tibial innervated, uh, and then you work your way up and um, say if you're shot at the biceps is affected, but then beyond that, the gluteus maximus or the TFL is normal. That'll make you think of a sciatic neuropathy. And again, with sciatic neuropathy, because again, it's um, postganglionic, you would expect that the sore response might be asymmetric or um, gone. And the superficial perineal response may be asymmetric or gone. Um, but in a, in a pure radiculopathy, for instance, in S1 radiculopathy, for instance, um, it's very it's very 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 uncommon to lose the sural response. Um, so generally, you would see a preserved um, sensory um, with the low amplitude tibial response on the national studies. And when you um, EMG them, you might see denervation in the S1 innervated muscles, for instance, the middle gastroc um, and the hamstrings, as well as the gluteus maximus and the S1 paraspinals. Um, but um, yeah, and, and I guess similarly, the upper extremities, um, if it's a radiculopathy, you shouldn't see any sensory changes. And if you're seeing sensory changes, you know, um, it, it does automatically put in the plexus. Mm -hmm. And there are no, uh, there's no caveats um, as, as opposed to the alpha radiculopathies as to when um, sensories can be involved in radiculopathies. The rule of thumb, they shouldn't be. And if the sensory is involved, then it's automatically telling you that it's... Um, there is, there might be a radiculopathy, but there's definitely some additional post pathology. 
that might be a neuropathy, that might be a plexopathy, um, but again, depends on the clinical uh, examination mm -hmm. and uh, the remainder of your nerve nutrition studies. Sure. I feel like that's a really nice lead into our next talk on EMGs and a bit of talk about radiculopathies there, but I'll stop there. So thank you so much Good. for your time. No worries. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropopcases.co.uk. Thank you.